chapter 29 this morning, Exodus 29. We're walking through the book of Exodus. Um, it seems to me that biblical faithfulness in this portion of Exodus requires uh, a slightly lever, le, 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 a slightly higher level approach, meaning we fly over the text rather than get too far down in the weeds. You'll remember chapter 26, the tabernacle, it's God's way of saying, I will overcome every obstacle to dwell with my people. You remember chapter 27 and 28, a description of the, of the courts outside the tabernacle and that big smoking altar. And you remember the images that are present on the priest's garments. In Christ, all of your sins are paid for, more than that. Jesus, your high priest, carries your name right before the Father in heaven. So here we come to chapter 29. One great high priest and then a group of priests under his priesthood who will serve in this world. We're going to pick up Exodus 29. We'll read the first 21 verses. Remembering, uh, I think this captures the substance of what we want to cover. This is all God's word. So let's give attention to it. Now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that is, the priesthood, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. Then you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring your sons and put coats on them. Bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes And bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out on the base of the altar. And you shall take all of the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It's a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It's a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Verse 19. You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumb of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that's on the altar, 
and the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his son's garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. So this is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Lord in heaven, we recognize that we have come across a ceremony. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would teach us the substance and the meaning of what we've just read. We pray for the help of your spirit, that we might have ears to hear what you would say to your people. And Father, a wretched man stands again to open his mouth to speak. I pray that you would use me uh, to point this narrow way. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Eric, um, listen, Jerry's job is just not very stable right now. So I wonder if you would pray for us, because I think you're closer to God than I am. My friend's mother made that request of me when I was 17 years old, even though my heart wasn't really at the time very tender toward Christ, even though my prayers at the time were rare and shallow and selfish. And yet she made that request of me, thinking that I would be more easily heard than she because I went to church with my parents. And now I get those kind of requests quite often, not based on church attendance, but because I'm an ordained pastor. And so to be very clear, I really do want God's people to ask me to pray for them. I really am delighted to pray for people inside the church outside the church, I'm happy to do it. I just don't want people to be confused. And what I mean by that is I don't want anybody who's a believer in Christ, a true Christian, to think that I have greater access to God than you do through prayer, by virtue of my office. So the passage that we just read actually speaks to that very issue. So when you take this chapter and you put it in the context of the whole Bible, it gives a very helpful instruction. This is actually the kind of thing that bothered uh, Martin Luther, that former Catholic monk. He started to push back against the concept of the priesthood because in the Bible, as Luther began to read, he noticed that everyone seems to have equal access to the holy God through Jesus Christ. And so why in the world would you need a human priest Why would you need a pastor to run interference for you? As if a priest or a pastor could give you greater access to God than any other average believer could have. And so it was Martin Luther who coined the term, the priesthood of all believers. Because the Bible says that through the blood of Christ, God ordained you to be a priest. So this morning, we're going to talk about your priesthood established, your priesthood embraced, and then thirdly, your priesthood understood. We start with the priesthood established. In the text we just read, you probably recognize we've stumbled into a ceremony. And when you encounter ceremonies in the Bible, you have to figure out what was it that they were intending to say to the original audience? What were they communicating? And then thereby, what do they mean for us as Christians, those who are living this side of the priestly sacrifice of Jesus Christ? You'll notice here that the ceremony that I just read has four elements to it. The person who is called to the priesthood is washed, robed, anointed, and atoned. Those four elements all of which point you and me to the priesthood of Jesus Christ 
and then on to the priesthood that he invites you and I to share. So just as Aaron's sons followed him, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. You and I get to share in this priesthood of Christ. We're welcomed into a new priesthood. First, someone is washed. It says in verse 4, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. The symbolism is obvious. and That is, to have any kind of relationship with God at all, you must be spiritually washed. So this ceremony of verse 4 is symbolic. Let's be really clear. God has chosen Aaron, and God has chosen Aaron's sons, and yet they are ordinary men who have sins of their own. And moreover, as that priesthood is passed, not only are they passing down Adam's sin, but each of them commits their own actual transgressions. And so the water can't do anything to cleanse their heart. But it pictures a spiritual fact. God must cleanse you internally if you would be clean. And all these symbols then carry over to the New Testament, which is why I always mention that that John the Baptist is not the guy who suddenly invented baptism. Now, there's various Old Testament baptisms throughout the Scriptures where God's people come and they are, are washed And it's Jesus who picks up those various Old Testament washings and he carries them forward as a way to mark out God's people and show that that there is cleansing from their sins. So in the New Testament, the water is actually a picture of Jesus' blood. The Apostle Paul, after reminding the Corinthian Christians that unbelievers are not going to be inheriting the kingdom of heaven. He lists various actions of those who would live outside of Christ. And then he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what the text says. And then Revelation chapter 1 actually connects all the dots between this washing in the blood of Christ and this new priesthood. It says, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, And made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. The washing of the blood was not only to cleanse you of your sins, but to call you into something entirely new. A priesthood. Do you remember Matthew chapter 3? Jesus goes out to be baptized with John the Baptist. They have a little side conversation. John says, no, no, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Does Jesus have sin of his own that needs to be washed away at baptism? No, he's actively walking the path of a high priest who must be washed in front of the people of God. In fact, what's happening there is a declaration. I am prepared in every aspect of the law to serve as God's anointed priest So the high priest is washed, then every other priest is washed. And then you notice something else. 
Somebody is robed. Verses 5 and 6, all those garments that we discussed last week in, in very careful detail, they're placed on Aaron. And then what? Verse 8 and 9. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes, bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. He was washed, then he was clothed, and the garments send a message. God has set this one apart because these garments picture righteousness. The, the fact that this one is robed to serve God. And yet it's an imputed righteousness, isn't it, with Aaron? We've talked already. Aaron is just an ordinary guy. And that's actually the point of it. No one wears their own robes of righteousness on their own. God alone must be the one who robes it. And it's all over the Bible. God's the one who robes a person in righteousness all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where Abraham believes God and it is credited to him as righteousness. All the way down to Galatians 3, verse 27, uh, as many, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's the language of putting on a, a robe. Righteousness imputed to you and me by faith in Jesus, even while Jesus took the filthy rags of your sin and was dragged to the cross where those rags were put to death. The New Testament declares that we wear the robes of our great high priest and then that we're called to continue to live out the wearing of those robes, live out the wearing of that righteousness. Romans chapter 13, verse 14, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Hope you'll notice throughout the sermon that all the texts that we've already read in the bulletin are here and they're present and they're relevant. Every priest is washed. Every priest is robed. Thirdly, every priest is anointed. Verse 7, the high priest is anointed first, which is really significant. In order for us to understand our priesthood, which we get from Christ. Christ is anointed first, or else no one may share in his priesthood. In the Old Testament, it's oil. And that oil is symbolic that God's spirit has set this one apart for God's service. It happened when King David was anointed. It also happens with priests. Psalm 45 is what we call a messianic psalm. That is a psalm that's telling about the coming Messiah. Incidentally, Messiah and Christ both mean to anoint. The one anointed. And the Messiah's anointing is foretold. And it's foretold because he carries on him his own righteousness, which is why the writer to the Hebrews picks up that psalm. And in Hebrews 1, 9, he quotes it as if God was speaking directly to Jesus. Listen to it. You have loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, because Jesus wore his own robes of righteousness, God set him apart for a special service. In the washing waters of baptism, 
communicated an ordination of Jesus as priest, then what follows is his anointing. Let's go back in our minds to Matthew chapter 3 again. Jesus, having been baptized, he comes up out of the water. Matthew 3, 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So this Old Testament symbolism of oil meant that the Holy Spirit was setting this priest apart for service. And Matthew says, in the case of Jesus, it wasn't oil. It was the actual Holy Spirit that descended upon him so that Jesus was set apart for this great high priestly work. And the Bible says your priesthood is granted through his It's actually why a few weeks back I warned you that those who use the language of anointing as if it is some special mystical gift given to just some special high-level Christians, that's just not true. In fact, I sometimes wonder if people who speak of a special anointing don't use it just simply to add some authority to their words that may not be God-given. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit so that you, all of you, might be likewise anointed by the Holy Spirit to serve God. So there's no special classification. The Apostle John, who laid his head on the chest of Jesus on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, thinks about this anointing and he writes a letter, 1 John chapter 2, and he talks about how the Holy Spirit is there to guide you into truth. 1 John 2, 20, you've been anointed by the Holy One. You all have knowledge. 1 John 2, 27, the anointing that you received from Jesus abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, abide in him. That doesn't, he's not saying in context, there's no need for any teaching at all. He's saying, given the scriptures, given the Holy Spirit, this is the anointing that you need in order to know truth. All those who come to faith in Christ are actually endowed and bestowed and gifted for special service to the Lord. Every priest is washed. Every priest is robed. Jesus was anointed so that you and I might receive his Holy Spirit. And then lastly, every priest is atoned. I mentioned as we walk through it that the ordination of the priest involves three sacrifices. The first is the bull. It's the largest. It's actually the most important of the sacrifices because this is the one that makes atonement for the priest himself. Verse 10 Aaron and his sons come, they lay their heads on the head of the bull, and it is symbolism. My sins deserve death. This beast dies in my place. And then later on, you notice something that seemed odd. All of the unclean parts of the animal are picked up, and they're carried outside the camp. Verse 14 summarizes it for you. It is a sin offering. And even that is pointing us to Christ the one who took on the unclean parts of the sins of God's people. Like that bull, Jesus is carried outside the camp. 
Because he carries your sin and your wickedness and your transgression. And it's picked up and it's carried outside the camp with the dung of your flesh. It's burned at the cross. It's a sin offering. But he wasn't just dying to pay for your sins. He was actually establishing a kingdom of priests to his father in heaven. Those who serve him would be washed and robed and anointed and atoned. Through the blood of Christ, God ordained you, his priest. Your priesthood established. Now we look at your priesthood embraced. You'll notice, of course, in this sermon, like all others, points get shorter and shorter and shorter. All the symbolism was meant to be embraced, not simply as a ceremony, but truly at a, at a heart level. The same is true for you in Christ What I mean by that is that your service to the Lord must really be embraced at a heart level. And so we'll talk about the terms and the food and the walk. We start with the terms. You could summarize priestly service in the Old Testament like this. You must live a consecrated life. And God sets the terms, which provides a helpful application for you and me. Where that ordination of priests involved three sacrifices, this bull, two rams. The bull symbolizes the atonement of sins. The second, a ram, a whole burnt offering. It's a reminder, I've been saved from my sins so that the whole of my life becomes devoted to the Lord. The third ram, I mean, excuse me, the third sacrifice is a ram, which includes this whole life imagery, but it includes something else. I bet you thought it was odd when we read it. Verse 20, take part of its blood, put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hand and on the great toe of the right foot and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. This is called a a, a wave offering. That is the people take the parts, they wave them before the Lord, having their sins atoned. What they're actually declaring is now we enjoy fellowship. We're, We're at peace with the holy God. But I wonder if you see the point of this odd imagery. Blood on the hand, your actions, blood on your foot, your direction in life, blood on your ear, listening, hearing God's word. That is what you do, where you go, whose voice you give heed to. It's all under the authority of the blood. That's the beautiful picture. By paying for your sins, God not only freed you from lifelong slavery and eternal punishment, but also through the blood of Jesus Christ, God ordained you to this whole life of service so that the blood of Jesus serves like an umbrella over your head and it becomes the authority under which you live. What you do from day to day by way of your work and your recreation, it must all be brought under the reign of the blood of Christ. Where you go, the direction of your life, what you pursue, what you give your heart to, it must all be brought under the reign of the blood of Christ. What voices you heed, the voice of your flimsy and fickle heart, or the voice of God Some are young and zealous. You hear this and you go, there it is. There it is. Okay. 
I'm supposed to give my life to full-time vocational ministry. I'm going to have to become a pastor. I need to become a missionary. I've got to work on staff for a church. It's not what this text means. It's not about the jobs that you do. It's about under whose authority you do it. The Old Testament priesthood actually had lots of different functions in it. There were those who were involved as craftsmen in construction. There's building and sewing. There's setting up. There's tearing down. There's transportation. There's logistics. And that is because, of course, these people were to embrace their priesthood. Remember the terms. Then God says, be nourished by the food. In verses 31 through 33, we didn't read it because we don't have time, but let me summarize it for you. There's a system whereby the priests are going to be fed from these sacrifices that are given. They're going to be physically fed on the sacrifices. Jesus picks up the language of the sacrifice as food in John chapter 6. You may remember he feeds 5,000 people. And then he says something that causes that number to dwindle radically. He says, I'm going to be your food. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for my life, for the, for the, for the world, is my flesh. How are you fed on Christ spiritually? Well, there's a sense in which when you come to embrace Jesus as your Savior, you're, you're actually feeding on his broken body and his shed blood for your eternal spiritual food. But there's another sense, too, in which you you really are called to take him daily, to commune with the Lord Jesus by feeding on him in his word and through his spirit. When you pray, you're actually being nourished by Jesus. When you remember the gospel and you apply it not only to your own life, but to the life of others in forgiving them, you're in a sense communing with Jesus and feeding upon him. There's a third way, though, too, isn't there? We come and we partake of the Lord's Supper at His table. This is a picture of spiritual food. We're nourished by these outward signs. So their call is to embrace your priesthood. You remember the terms. You're nourished by the food. And then there's this issue of walk. What do we mean there? The passage goes on to talk about a continuous, patient, day after day, walk with the Lord. Verses 37, excuse me, 38 through 42 provide like a snapshot of what the, the daily life of the priesthood would entail. And Alec Motier says this. I think it's funny. He says, it's a daily grind of performing repeated sacrifices each day, very much like the other. And the daily repetition would have surely lost its freshness and excitement. And yet then Motier goes on to say, it's a priestly privilege a framework of their walk with God was to be patient continuance in well-doing. I'm sure that given the nature of the work that these guys did, you're probably very grateful this is not your calling in life. But I think you know, don't you, as priests of King Jesus, your life can feel very much like theirs did at times. Here's what I mean. For students, it's class, study, tests, and then they sprinkle in a paper. And then you go to bed and it's class, study, and tests again. 
for stay-at-home moms. It's feed people, wipe noses, change diapers, break up arguments, crash in your bed, get up, repeat it again tomorrow. If you're employed outside the home, meetings, emails, projects, calendars, deadlines, get up, repeat it again tomorrow. And I mention that because here's a very honest look at real life. Whether you know Christ or you don't know Christ, there are times and seasons when life can just simply be a grind. But if you are a priest of King Jesus, here at least you know your priesthood is not wasted. It will not simply be lost to time, but instead it will, with time, always be rewarded for everything that God calls you to do is good work. And it is pleasing to Him when you do it under the reign of Christ. You might call it mundane. The New Testament calls it continuing in your faith. You may call it mundane. The New Testament just calls it patient endurance. And then in chapter 12 of Hebrews, after having detailed all of those characters of the faith who simply clung to Jesus in the midst of things that were not pleasant, chapter 12 begins, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. You see, through the blood of Christ, God has ordained you, his priests. So your priesthood established, your priesthood embraced, and now you rejoice third point is always shorter than the first two. Your priesthood understood. Let's be really clear. God was establishing a priesthood in the nation of Israel so that there would be a group of people who would live their lives in the presence of God. In other words, who would focus their attention on the things that made his presence real in their midst. A group of people who would wait upon him, who would wait upon his word. Which is exactly the way the New Testament speaks of those who are in Christ. Just like the Old Testament priests, your priesthood in Christ is only understood in the context of promises. Now, the last portion of chapter 29 gives us a construction we actually haven't seen since Exodus chapter 6. I will bring you out. That's what he said in Exodus 6. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Here he says, verse 42, I will meet with you. Verse 43, I will meet with the people. Verse 44, I will consecrate. Verse 45, I will dwell. So you hear a summons, don't you? And it's a summons rooted in the guarantee that God will be faithful to his promises. Their life purpose is to devote themselves to the Lord, to reflect his presence in the nation, all because he promised to be with them. And your life purpose is to devote yourself to the Lord, to reflect his presence in the world, because in Christ, God meets with you, he dwells with you, he sanctifies you, so that none of this is wasted. In fact, it's all service as a priest under your king. 1 Peter 2, 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Through the blood of Christ, God ordained you his priest. Let's pray. Only Father, we acknowledge that this is remarkable, that we are all very ordinary people, and yet we give you thanks and rejoice that you have robed us in the righteousness of Jesus. You have even set us apart for this kingdom service. We thank you for it. We pray that your spirit would bind your word to our hearts, that it would not fall away, that it would land in the soil of a soft, good soil of our hearts and help us to know Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.